Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. Your mustache is looking really strong right now. Hey, yours is uh, looking pretty good as well, sir. I kind of hate it, but we're doing it for a good cause, guys. Um, doing it for good before cause. we get into this episode uh, with Brantley from ENS, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about a little charity competition that David and I are doing. So we've talked about this before and we've actually already raised over $500, which is pretty fucking mm-hmm. awesome. And mm-hmm. we're really proud of you guys. Thanks a lot. You guys are way more open to giving us money than giving us five-star reviews, which kind of blows my mind, but <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. So we are kind of changing exactly how we're doing this. We wanted to make this crank up the BTC versus ETH uh, aspect of this competition. So what we're doing now is that the combined funds in each BTC and ETH address are going to be going to the Movember, uh, Movember Foundation. And then the difference, so let's say uh, 500 in ETH and then uh, 515 in Bitcoin, David would have to pay $15 to, to match. To match, right? And he's going to have to pay it to BTC Pay Server Foundation which is the foundation that is spearheading development for BTC pay server. The other way around, if you know, it's 115 or if it's uh, 515 in ETH and then 500 BTC, I would have to pay $15 worth of uh, ether or die or whatever to get coin grants. And I think you have a couple in mind, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'll spread them off out across a number of Gitcoin grants, uh, Uniswap, ETH Hub, probably Austin Griffith, uh, Prismatic Labs, ETH2 developers, kind of, kind of spread it around. Uh, $15 probably wouldn't be uh, spreadable. So uh, Ethereans, let's uh, donate some money so we can get some BTC coins inside of Gitcoin grants. Yeah, you guys, you guys got to at least fund like seven different grants. So you're gonna have to pull in like a couple hundred extra bucks. But mm-hmm. uh, so We're going to do good. Either an Ethereum or a BTC nonprofit organization is going to get some funding. And then Movember is also going to get a big chunk of of cash. Mm -hmm. So uh, super stoked about this so far. Before we get, and then let's, uh, let's, let's, but now that we're done telling you about Movember, let's talk about our fantastic sponsors. Our first sponsor, you know it, eToro eToro is the number one social trading platform. They have been innovating in the financial space since 2013. Uh, 2016, they incorporated crypto, brought crypto to Europe, brought crypto to all around the world, and now they are in the United States. Their new platform allows you to buy and invest and trade in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies the way that you want with one click of a mouse. They have social trading features, so that way you can follow any trader. They also have super easy portfolios. Um, So essentially, any type of trading strategy, stacking sats, whatever, it all can be automated with one click of a mouse on eToro. They also will give you $100,000 of fake money in a virtual practice trading account, so you can mess around there and kind of sharpen up before you put any real skin on the game. So that's a pretty cool feature that we have not mentioned yet, though. So check out eToro, b.tc backslash eToro, P-O-V. That is b.tc backslash eToro, P-O-V. 
And one more sponsor before we get into the episode. Celsius Network is the newest lending platform on the scene. They support a ton of assets. So go check out Celsius Network and see all the various assets that you can uh, lend through their network. Their rates are pretty crazy. I'm comparing uh, Celsius Network to Compound right now. On Compound, you can uh, lend die for 5.8%. And on Celsius, it's going for 6.5% even bigger of a difference. Uh, USDC in compound is 4.5%, but on Celsius, it's 8.3%, so almost double. Uh, and then you can also lend out Ether for 3.6%, which, I mean, you're not going to get anything like that in DeFi. So if you enjoy centralization risk rather than contract risk, uh, Celsius Network is the platform for you. Uh, they have an app that you can download and just do it right from your phone. Uh, and if you guys want to get $10 in BTC, use code POV to sign up. Uh, so if you want to lend out your Bitcoin, you'll get a $10 subsidy. You guys, this is the second ETH podcast in a row where I just kind of sat there and try to take it all in and learn as much as I could. Uh, I thought it was super interesting learning about ENS and what they're trying to build um, with Ethereum as like a moderating solution to moderate out all of these nonprofit and companies that kind of run the DNS system today. Um, Brantley was super knowledgeable and very deep in the DNS space working on ENS. Um, David, what do you think about this interview? It became immediately aware that Brantley is super smart, uh, really, really smart guy, way smarter than me, uh, and has been in the crypto space for a long time. So in, in addition to all of his really helpful in, uh, information about how the, the legacy system works and then mapping it onto the uh, Ethereum system. Um, just kind of all the complexities and the, uh, the progression of how ENS came to be and how, they, they, how and why they made the choices they did. Uh, just um, super articulate, gives a bunch of context. Uh, so, and he's also a great storyteller. Uh, so the whole first part of the episode was all about the ENS and, and what it can do for you today. Uh, and then on top of that, we, you know, we asked some really important questions like what, what is ENS going to do with all the money that they're taking in, which is really important. I think that's uh, a very short but really powerful part of the episode. I think everyone should, everyone should chew on that. Uh, ENS has a bunch of money and they don't know what to do with it. Um, and so I think we should all, all open up that conversation. not say that explicitly. <laughs> well, yeah, we have not, they have not answered the question as to where this money is going. Uh, and so uh, I think the Ethereum community is... Uh, <laughs> is it should also have this conversation just uh, maybe on Twitter or whatever. Um, and then, and then we get into actually a pretty interesting uh, Christian versus the host of the, and then we get into a pretty interesting Christian versus guest debate. Uh, Brantley held his own on a little bit of a, of a, of a fight night. Uh, Brantley had been in, in crypto way before all of us. And so he had a unique perspective in that regard. So that was fun to sit back and, and listen to. I think, he gave some of the more interesting takes um, that I've ever seen as a guest. Uh, he said the value, he said this really subtly and I didn't really bring it up, but I'm chewing on it a little bit more. He says the value in networks are based in the community. And I want to think about that more, which I will. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't agree with the community stuff. I think it's all, this is all the antithesis of community, but uh, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. This was super fun. Have fun. I hope that you guys enjoy learning about ENS. Um, without further ado, let's just get right into it. Hey. 
Brantley Milligan of ENS. Welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Brantley, uh, will you kind of describe for our listeners your background and how you came to ENS? Yeah, uh, I live in Springfield, Oregon, which is near Eugene, Oregon. Go Ducks. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm married with five kids. I have a master's in systematic theology. Uh, I've actually done doctoral work in theology as well. This is a whole nother life. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been in the blockchain space for a long time. Like, uh, was a Bitcoiner back in the day. And then, uh, and then, of course, you know, Ethereum came along, which was better. So I've, I've put my focus there. Nice. And uh, I've, I've loved ENS since it launched uh, two and a half years ago. Uh, and I've worked uh, full-time on the team for about a year. What is ENS? ENS stands for the Ethereum Name Service. And it is a decentralized blockchain-based naming infrastructure project uh, that wants to take over the internet. And we're doing it. So... Christian will always uh, ask this question, so I'm going to get ahead of him and ask this first. Is it actually decentralized, or is there a backdoor, or is there some oracle, or is there any like chink in the armor there? Yeah, so I, I would say decentralization is a uh, spectrum. Mm-hmm. So there are elements of our system which are less decentralized, and there are elements that are very decentralized. Um, and so it depends on, on the part, and we can we can go through how it works and, and do all that. So for example, I'll give an example. Um, right now for setting the renewal price, uh, we just manually set that. So let's mm-hmm. say for most it's $5 a year paid in ether. And then we use the MakerDAO uh, die Oracle to have that conversion. Um, so, so the maker die art Oracle, I mean, some people say that it's not as decentralized as it could be. So, I mean, you know, that is, that is something, mm-hmm. you know, upfront about, and then we set the price. Um, you know, I, we're open to ideas of how that we could, do that in a decentralized way, like in a, in a responsible way going forward mm-hmm. into the future, like a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're not confident in, in any of those ideas. We have some ideas. If something comes along, you know, then we'll use that. Um, but for example, we can't just like take away someone's .eth name. Mm-hmm. So that is decentralized. So it depends on, on the point. Which component? Okay. Yeah. And I, I like that. And so I, like before- it, I'll also mention like, we don't run any like infrastructure it all runs as smart contracts on Ethereum. So like if we blew up and went away, mm-hmm. everything would still keep running. Nice, nice. Okay, so uh, before we skip too far ahead into the technicalities of ENS, can you kind of just talk about uh, why ENS is? Like, why do we need it? Yeah, so uh, one, the internet needs naming because uh, identifiers that make sense to computers don't make sense to humans and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So for example, uh, Computer identifiers can be generated, you know, just it doesn't really matter who gets what. They can be long strings of numbers and letters. Software can read that right away, uh, but humans can't. However, what humans like are things like think words with social context and things like computers are not good at that. Mm-hmm. And those can't just be generated, right? You need mm-hmm. who gets which one is, is a social question, not a computer question. So a naming system bridges that gap. So that's why we have naming systems at all. Now, the Internet has, has one called DNS, the domain name system. It launched in 1985 and you know works fine. It's not perfect. It's the best of 1980s computer technology. And since then, there have been massive changes and improvements in computer science. And we think that blockchain technology is a, an, an obvious uh, exponential improvement uh, for naming infrastructure. It can do everything that DNS does better and more. It can, our infrastructure can do things that DNS would not ever be capable of doing. And um, yeah, so so that's that that's why we need it 
So actually, let's get into that a little bit. Can you tell people just people assume that they know very little about how DNS works and what service it is delivering, and then kind of compare and contrast that with what you're building at ENS. And Perfect. also, uh, before we start, uh, just I should have said this at the start. If Christian and I are ever pointing at each other, you totally ignore that. That's just for us to communicate like visually. Okay. So, yeah. So I, I didn't know if Very you were trying to tell me something or what, what's going on. Do I have something on my face? I don't know. You, you look beautiful. Thank you for, Thank for you. coming on. Thank you. Uh, so it's not just my mother who thinks that. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So, so here's how DNS is one of these things that it's like essential to the functioning of the internet, but like hardly anybody know, like thinks about it because it just, it just works. Most people don't even know there is a DNS, you know, a domain name system. And even a lot of tech savvy people don't really know that much about how it works because it's just, it's, it's working. It's not that interesting. There's not innovation going on there. You know what I mean? It's just like this lower layer, layer of the tech stack. Um, so, so, so the way DNS works is there is what's called the DNS root. And it is a set of servers that are the canonical, it's sort of like the canonical list of top level domains, what, which ones there are and where defined the servers for those top level domains. This DNS route is run by a nonprofit organization called ICANN, the Internet Corporation for the Assignment of Numbers and Names. And they're basically the nonprofit in the world for governing the namespace, basically. Because if naming, naming is a social coordination problem, right? Because you can't just generate these things randomly. Everybody has to be agreeing on who owns what name. So like if you own google.com, owning google.com, what that means is Everyone else in the world agrees not to use that. That's all that means, just a social contract, mm. right? Because somebody else can spin up a server and start saying, I'm Google.com. There's nothing preventing that. The only thing is, is the social contract. So, so uh, people need to understand this. It's very important to naming. It's, it's a social and technological issue. It's not just technological. Some, sometimes people, uh, tech technologists can just focus on the technology side. Wait, so if, if I do go up and spin up a Google.com and say that I own that, I'm assuming that won't work. What prevents that from working? So, so the only reason it wouldn't work is because the, the, the systems that you are using are not like looking to your server for mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But They're they could. They're looking to server? Right, but they could look to your server. There's nothing preventing that, right? There's, so there's, there's to, no other enforcement mechanism. <laughs> if I yeah, to you could hard fork, fork DNS <laughs> if you want to. You'll, people have attempted to do exactly that. Mm -hmm. um, if, you, if you look in the history, history of this. So, so ICANN is the organization that, and like the whole world's a member of this. Like people from China and the United States and Africa, you know, everywhere, right, mm -hmm. are, are there. And it's amazing to go to their meetings because you have people from all over the world, you know, coordinating these things. And they're free, open to the public. They have three a year. I, I've been to them. So they run what's called the DNS root server. And they, they actually, they, they, they run these servers. So when your computer goes to google.com, the first thing it so 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 the first thing it does is actually it goes to a DNS root server. So so here here's another thing people don't understand. Let's say you're going to uh, calendar.google.com. Mm -hmm. There is actually a hidden dot at the end of that. It's it's actually calendar.google.com dot nothing. That dot nothing that the extra dot your browser just does it for you in the background. That that dot nothing represents the the um, the root server. So your computer connects to a root server and asks, hey where do I find the comm servers? So then it tells you an IP address and then your computer connects to a comm server and you ask those comm servers, where do I find the Google servers? It just goes down the line and it tells you. So then you go to a Google server and says, hey, where do I find the calendar server? 
it tells you. And then you go to the calendar server and that is, now you're at calendar.google.com. That's mm -hmm. how that works. And every step of the way, there are organizations or even for-profit companies that own those servers. So for example, .com is owned by a for-profit American company, VeriSign. Nobody knows about them. They, they, they own this key piece of the internet. And uh, yeah, you know, ICANN has all these rules about how they manage it, you know, and they're not going to mess it up, but they run it and they run like, you know, dozens of, of calm directory servers to find, you know, where Google is and things like this. They have backups and everything like that. You, you can just forget about it. Mm -hmm. They own that. So if you have a .com name, you're paying VeriSign. Mm -hmm. they, they have like a hundred million .coms. They get, you know, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar company. They're amazing. Why did .com or VeriSign come out of it? Why not dot con or dot co like what's up with that so early in the in the domain name space there were just a couple top level domains so these endings mm -hmm. and dot com represented dot, uh, commerce it's supposed mm -hmm. to be for websites that are commerce so there's also like dot gov was one of these original ones for government dot mil mm -hmm. for military um, dot net for networks and then they've slowly added more there, there's a process that ICANN has they eventually did dot biz dot info and then like 10 years ago, they added like a bunch of new ones. Like you can just apply, you know, you can get like, you know, dot realty, you know, dot tech, you know, you go mm -hmm. see all these uh, and, and private companies own these. Mm -hmm. So, so, so with how DNS oh. is this hierarchical server system, right? And it works mm -hmm. fine. Uh, one big problem though with it is that it came out back when public private key cryptography was illegal. Mm. So a lot of people don't know this history. That was invented in the 70s, but until the 90s, at least in the United States, you were, it was considered like a national security threat. You couldn't use it, especially you couldn't tell foreigners, you'd go to jail. And there's a whole history of Hal Finney, who was later involved in Bitcoin, he led the PGP project, which their goal was to, get, to force the US government to declassify it. And they did that successfully, it's an amazing story. And, but before that you could, so DNS was not built with public-private key cryptography. Now they have, they have a system called DNSSEC that's trying to impose that, but not everyone uses it, it doesn't work very well. Uh, so, so DNS works fine. Uh, it does have uh, security problems. There's a whole multi-billion dollar like security problem industry, you know, uh, costs that happen with that. Most people works just fine. Our system though, works completely different. And uh, are, are we ready for me to go into how ENS works? Or do you have yes. any other questions about how DNS works? Other than, is there any centralization risk? Like, can these companies like blow up and then we lose access to dot coms or whatever? Yes, they can. Okay. Now so that's bad. You know, their like whole job is making sure that doesn't happen. So they have, right. they have like twenty backups in different countries and continents mm -hmm. around the world. So mm -hmm. it's a very like dot com. I don't think has ever gone down. So it's, it's like kind of its own distributed system. Yeah, but I mean, but but you know, smaller TLDs can like have downtime and things mm -hmm. like this. I mean. It's just if they are on my top of running their infrastructure. My company plays around with some funny uh, domains with like .et or .tc and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and not very reliable. Not all not all domains are are the same. Right. So like .et is is a country code top level domain for Ethiopia. So if Ethiopia is not on top of running their infrastructure, <laughs> maybe they have a coup going on or whatever it is. I don't. I'm sorry, Ethiopians. I don't know. I'm not trying to defend you, but. There are seven the Ethiopians that have downloaded POV crypto episodes. <laughs> great. And, and that's great. <laughs> okay. So ENS. Right. So completely different paradigm. So mm -hmm. all that server hierarchy, throw it out. We've, it, it's gone. 
ENS does all the logic of, of the domain system, but mm -hmm. as just a set of smart contracts on Ethereum. That is it. We run no servers. People say like, how do we access your servers? We don't run them. We don't run any infrastructure at all. So the, 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 the logic of who owns a name, setting the records, and then the, where the records are stored, that's all on the Ethereum blockchain. Mm -hmm. So for example, when you do a lookup of ENS, you have a name and you query like the, the ENS contract is just a read, it doesn't cost anything to do a lookup. Hey, where do I find the records for this name? And, and it, you'll, you'll get an answer. And then you go look up the records on the Ethereum blockchain in that spot. There you go. Done. How much does, is there any like storage costs to that? Like how much data are we storing here? Yeah, I mean, it's a very small amount of data and Ethereum right now has no ongoing or like storage rent. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure you know this is, there's debate about this is maybe in the future. Right now it doesn't cost anything and writing the small amounts of data costs, you know, like a few cents. Okay. Most people are not changing their records all the time. It's negligible. But what happens if this really blew up? Like, could you end up kind of writing a lot of data? Yeah. Okay. So, so people say, can ENS scale? Mm -hmm. Good question. People ask me this all the time. So I'd say right now, you know, ENS has hundreds of thousands of names running on the system and things like this. Mm -hmm. uh, it works just fine. No problem. Could we have, you know, a billion users tomorrow? No, we could not. Um, I don't think Ethereum or, or really any blockchain could, could mm -hmm. do that uh, without severe centralization. So, but I guess our philosophy is, you know, we'll kind of, we, there's certain ways we could scale things. Like we could be offloading storage to IPFS and just be putting an IPFS mm -hmm. pointer and we just do the naming logic. That's, that's a possibility. We've, we're actually pursuing that uh, for, for uh, in a DNS records project I could talk about later. Um, we could maybe use a side chain or something like this. Obviously, ETH 2.0, if that works out, you know, there could be benefits there. So, you know, I would say as we run into problems, you know, we can solve them. Um, but right now, everything works fine. I was actually going to ask about a more centralized competitor of yours. Uh, or it was uh, Unstoppable Domains. Um, so they were working on Silica, and now they have the dot .crypto, um, I guess, ending of the domain like how do you guys or how does ens kind of compare to un, unstoppable domains and what do you think of what they're doing good question so you're, you're looking to get some uh, me bashing a competitor here so yes yeah, so, just I mean, curious look, about compare and contrast don't have to bash okay you could also uh, bash <laughs> so i mean yeah lots of differences uh one uh there are for-profit vc-backed company um, I have nothing against for-profit companies, but that gives them a certain, you know, incentive model. Uh, ENS on, on the other hand started as a side project at the EF. It's spun off as its own nonprofit last year. We've lived mostly off grants, a uh, very different incentive model. Um, we think naming infrastructure, uh, is a public good is a basic, you know, it's basic infrastructure. Uh, so we don't think it should be like owned and managed by a for-profit. We think that doesn't make sense. Um, you know, that's they the old model. Yeah. I mean, they, they disagree. Um, and, uh, so, so, but, but for, for, you know, that, that, that's, that's a major difference. Um, another major difference I would say is also in terms of philosophy and relationship to the rest of the internet. So this is really fundamental. We view ENS as, as naming infrastructure that can support the current namespace. So we're actually integrating the DNS namespace to work onto ENS. We're using a DNSSEC proofs to do that. 
We've already done that with .xyz, .lux, .art, .cred, and, and now we're going to be rolling that out in the next few months to all the rest of the DNS namespace, if they have DNSXs, all, the, all, all everything you've heard of, so like .com, .org, .io, everything would work on ENS. Mm -hmm. um, and we want ENS to basically complement uh, and expand the usefulness of the current namespace and maybe long term, like just completely upgrade the tech stack of the domain name system. Mm -hmm. We want to respect the current namespace. Remember, that's a social contract. We want to respect that and we want to respect those processes in place for managing that. Not that they can't be improved, but we, you know, that's a separate question than the tech stack. Unstoppable domains is taking a completely different approach. Uh, you know, they, they did create .zil, sort of similar to what we did with .eth. You know, you can, you know, it's kind of an experimental zone. That, that, that's one thing. But with, with their release of .crypto, that's, that's a highly valuable top-level domain. They are not going through the ICANN process, and that is not going to be uh, acknowledged by the rest of the internet. So they are putting themselves in opposition to the rest of the namespace. Uh, we think that's irresponsible on a, on, in a number of ways. One, it's going to unnecessarily antagonize the, the rest of the internet, um, which could set back their adoption of blockchain technology in the naming industry. So we think that's, that's foolish. But secondly, we think it's really bad for users because .crypto has not been acknowledged like that they have the right to sell those names. In the next GTLD round at ICANN, it's coming up in the next couple of years, somebody else could, could win the rights to .crypto and start selling the names. Now you have what's called a name collision problem where two different people on the internet own the same name in different systems. It's unclear to, you know, which system is my client using? That's really bad. And it, it could make all, they're selling all these names to people. They're, those names could potentially become useless in the future because someone else who is using the DNS system, which is much more widely used, mm -hmm. is selling the same names. Of course, their company will still have the money, but this, this is a risk that they are taking. Now, from a business standpoint, is .crypto a great name sell? Of course it is. We could do that. There's nothing preventing us from making a thousand top-level domains. That's technologically negligible. The question is, is that responsible in it to, to, to users? And is this, is this really the, the future you know, for mm -hmm. the naming community? That's a very big difference. I, I actually find all this to be super, super interesting, especially uh, kind of your strategy or ENS's strategy of respecting and piggybacking off of the network effects um, of the existing DNS system. Can you kind of talk a little bit more about why you think, I, uh, why you think uh, ENS can more successfully be integrated and upgrade the existing DNS system when other attempts have failed in the past? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we're just talking about kind of giving a complementary tech stack. So as long as we're not challenging the name, the namespace is the really big thing, okay? That they're gonna die on that hill, I can't. And you're not gonna, it'd be foolish to fight that. The tech stack though, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're not messing up the current tech stack, people are gonna be okay with that. Um, and uh, so for example, if I have Brantley, I, this actually works right now, I have Brantley.xyz in DNS, that's a DNS name. I've claimed that on ENS, so I own an ENS and a DNS record for the same name. Um, and then I've set up a website at Brantley.xyz, and then I can also receive cryptocurrency at Brantley.xyz using ENS, like in wallets that support that. Um, so from like a user standpoint, the user doesn't have to know that there's DNS and ENS in the background, it doesn't matter, like it just works. 
Uh, and since we're focused on kind of naming areas that DNS is not currently serving, like there is an overlap there. Um, so, you know, there's not really competition. It just, it's just basically an extension of the usefulness of your name. And so actually just about a week ago, I got back from, from the third ICANN conference of this year in Montreal, ICANN 66. I, I also presented at ICANN 65 in Marrakesh, Morocco this summer in Montreal. Uh, people are super excited about ENS because we're not, we're not challenging the namespace. We just want to complement, upgrade the text, you know, you know, offer more functionality. And lots of organizations want to work with us and are, are either already integrating ENS. We have some that have already done that. Others are, are highly interested, like major organizations. Some I can't say, but there's a lot of organizations interested. So I think that's the key thing is we're not trying to mess up what we're doing. We're just adding functionality. So how would Google use ENS? What would be the most obvious approach for them to leveraging the benefit that ENS can provide them? Good question. Uh, so all the Googlers who I'm sure faithfully listen to uh, this podcast, a um, number of ways. Uh, you could, of course, uh, receive cryptocurrency with any of your domains. Uh, you could give, you know, cryptocurrency, uh, give domains, you know, subdomains to users, similar to like to, with Gmail. Um, we've actually considered making a system where people can claim their email address on ENS. So you can have that integration so that, hey, email me at bcmilligan.gmail.com and send me cryptocurrency there. You know, that, that's a possibility. Google has, uh, you know, Google domains. Uh, we would love it. And we, we're actually in talks with a bunch of registrars right now about this, that, you know, if somebody has a DNS name, make it so that they click one button and it claims their ENS record for them. You know, right now it's kind of tricky to do, but simplify it. That would be great. And just expand the capability of all those names. Again, users don't even have to know they're using ENS. It's, just, it's abstracted away. We'd love that. And then, of course, uh, in Chrome, um, add uh, ENS functionality there. So you could be doing lookups showing maybe IPFS websites. Uh, Opera has this, and of course you can do this in Chrome if you have the MetaMask plugin, but it'd be great if, if there was a Chrome, um, uh, you know, that was built into Chrome. The, the, the key thing I, I, you know, we're going here is that the fact that ENS runs on Ethereum, we would like to completely abstract away from users. So like I could send Bitcoin to google.com. Like you don't have to know it's like the logic's happening on Ethereum in the background. That's our goal. Okay, but how does that work? So like if I have my Bitcoin address field on my Bitcoin wallet and I type in google.com, it's not going to work, right? So like where's the missing link? So because we haven't integrated .com into our system yet, so that's coming in the next few months. So mm -hmm. that's the, the DNS namespace integration. We have done this with like .xyz and a couple other smaller top-level domains I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. So like that does work. Like right now, if you want to send me cryptocurrency, uh, send it to Brantley, B-R-A-N-T-L-Y .xyz, and it will, it will work in, uh, in you know, like MetaMask, for example. That, that will work. But how do I send a Bitcoin in MetaMask? You're not talking yes. about WBTC. You're talking about BTC. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I am talking about BTC. So MetaMask doesn't, doesn't support that. So Trust Wallet does. Uh -huh. So in Trust Wallet, you could type in Brantley.eth or Brantley.xyz. Uh, and as long as there's a Bitcoin address in the record, what it does mm. is it goes and grabs the Bitcoin address, brings it back, and then it sends the transaction on that network. So, so the naming system is just for the lookup of the information. Mm -hmm. The wallet actually is what sends the transaction. Right. Okay. So the wallet, so Trust Wallet looks up 
the Bitcoin address that's on record in ENS. And it knows to do that because it's specifically integrated with ENS. Correct. And maybe another wallet that hasn't integrated with ENS, this won't work. Correct. So okay. we have, I mean, right now we have, oh, I don't know, it's off of my head, like 15 to 20 wallets that are integrated right now. Uh, but we have about 40 wallets, so total, including the ones that have integrated, that have committed to integrating and are integrating soon. Like Coinbase Wallet says they're going to have it by the end of the year. Right. Hmm. Uh, the Bitcoin.com wallet is integrated. They're using ENS, even though they don't even support Ether, but they're going to use us for naming. I mean, why not? Um, <laughs> nice. And I mean, all the main ones you, you can think of have, have either integrated already or, or integrating it soon. And if, and if there's some wallet out there that hasn't, uh, you know, you don't even need our permission to integrate, just do it. Uh, but let us know and we'll add you, you know, to our, our like marketing lists on that. We'll give you a, a free PR boost. Very cool. Very cool. Go for it, Christian. So, uh, I mean, I'm sure that there's going to be plenty of time to like dive into why Ethereum and uh, how all that architecture kind of works, but kind of on a higher level to that, I kind of want to just talk about sending cryptocurrencies to ENS names. Um, something that is really important in the Bitcoin community and people harp on a lot is avoiding address reuse and kind of best practices around that. Um, how does ENS deal with that? and um, I guess, yeah, how do you, how does it deal with uh, address reuse? Because from what I can tell, it's just you're sending it to one address over and over again, which is not necessarily the best uh, cryptocurrency hygiene. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I, I agree that is, an, that is a very good practice. Um, and we don't have something for that right now. So, so any user, you know, you know, I would not put any cryptocurrency address in your ENS name that's like your main like cold storage wallet or something like this. We don't recommend that, you know, have like a secondary thing. Um, and, and we, we have had some discussion about uh, getting a different, uh, having ENS automatically generate new addresses for you or something like that, or some sort of wildcard system. Uh, we've discussed that uh, and, and we'd love to have that. And it's just something that somebody has to figure out and, and implement. Uh, I would say there's tons of things that can, you know, can be improved with ENS. Um, and somebody just has to do it. So if somebody's out there as a developer and has an idea, uh, we're an open source project. You know, we're just a nonprofit. You know, really with not that many resources. And if you want to start working on this, please do, and just and take it on. But you're right that it, that is a weakness. Um, but I, you know, I hope that that can be improved going forward. So let's get into the topic that has exploded recently, at least on crypto Twitter, is all these ENS names are popping up from all these Ethereum personalities. So can you, we, we, can, we actually might be able to do this live uh, if, we want, if we want to, but the whole value proposition, at, at least of ENS today, is that somebody with an Ethereum address can change their 0x123fj43 address to um, to davidhoffman.eth as I have. So, you know, send your die, send your crypto to davidhoffman.eth. You don't even need to, you know, you don't have to uh, have to copy and paste anything. It's like telling people to go to google.com and everyone can do this today. So how does that process work uh, in the back end? Like what's this structure uh, inside of Ethereum that associates a wallet uh, with, you know, davidhoffman.eth? Yeah, I mean, we just have smart contracts that, that, mm -hmm that, you know, say this name is, has th these records and only this private key can change the records for that name. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that complicated. It's pretty simple. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then on the wall, on the wallet side, again, it's pretty, it's just a lookup. 
you know, you just type in the name, they, it gets the, the appropriate information mm -hmm. based on what you're doing. And then it sends it along, you know, the wallet sends it. Uh, ENS ultimately is not that complicated. Mm -hmm. um, I, I will mention though that, you know, we are, I'd say our primary use case that we're kind of pushing is this cryptocurrency wallet naming. That's kind of our bread and butter. And we're, and, you know, we're the leaders in that by a long shot. You mentioned Unstoppable Domains. Another major difference is that we have way more ecosystem support. I think they have like four wallets that support them. I think they've been like paying wallets like huge amounts of money, trying to get them to, to, to use it. We haven't paid anybody and we've got like 40 wallets signed up and that's growing all the time, um, including all the major ones. <clears throat> uh, but we, we actually do much more than just the cryptocurrency wallet naming. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so any, something to understand about naming systems is that a naming system that can name one thing can really name anything. Cause it's just like, you're just looking up information, right? You could put anything in that. Uh, so, that really just comes down to creating standards so that clients can expect what type of, you know, what type of information to expect. So we not only have any kind of cryptocurrency, but we also have um, uh, IPFS hashes. So we have decentralized websites. Like if you go to Brantley.eth and, uh, and put a slash at the end of it, um, and if you have MetaMask in your browser, it will load up an IPFS website. It works right now. And if you don't have MetaMask, just add .link. So do brantley.eth.link. This is a service we run, and it will load like a normal website in any browser. Um, we also do tor.onion addresses. Uh, so the tor.onion websites have a naming problem. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, uh, but they do. And you can now put tor.onion addresses in, in that content field. And this works in the Tor browser if you have MetaMask enabled. We, we actually have some. Uh, some some names set up to do this. I like can go to Facebook tour.eth and we'll go to the Facebook.onion version. We also have uh, text records for um, personal information. You know, it's just voluntary. If you want to put a Twitter handle or GitHub, you know, username or a an avatar file link or a URL to your website or whatever you want, you can do that. You know, it's your choice. Um, and then we, uh, we have some early projects to use ENS to serve traditional DNS, pro uh, DNS records. These are, these are experimental, but we have some organizations we're working with that. So ENS, so ENS does, can do anything, um, but just the cryptocurrency wallet thing is just sort of our, our main first use case. So talk about the resolver. What's the resolver do? So the resolver contract um, is basically it, so, so like when you get an ES name, you have to set a resolver contract and we're, mm -hmm. we're working on improving this UI to make fewer steps here, but basically it tells you have your name and it, that's saying like, where do I find the records? Mm -hmm. And most, we have what we call the public resolver, which is the resolver contract that we've created. And that has all the, 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 the fields that we've standardized. So like mm -hmm. all the cryptocurrency things and IPFS, we've standards we've created and 99% of people are going to use that. So just use public resolver. We have that extra step though, because if, if you want to create your own record set for your own specific use case, mm -hmm. you are free to do so. Like you could take our public resolver and extend it, or you could just create your own completely record set for your custom use case. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's kind of, another part of the power of ENS being open source is it can be extended and used however you want. And so built into the whole ENS system, there, there's two other buttons that you press as you set up your, your wallet for your ENS name. There's a, a registrar and a set button. And so to my knowledge, what this means is that uh, one, um, 
makes chan- uh, transfers ownership. So register transfers ownership of like davidhoffman.eth and then the other button sets which wallet is uh, using, which, uh, which wallet davidhoffman.eth redirects uh, funds to. And so what's interesting is like you can be the owner of davidhoffman.eth, but, I, but you can direct it to any wallet you want, right? So I can direct it to Christian's wallet. Which, uh, so, which is interesting because like I can be the owner, but I can like be renting it out to someone. Have you thought about the possibility of renting out ENS names, especially ENS names that are really, you know, going to be in high demand, like three and four, uh, character ENS names. Have you thought about this, any secondary market that might come out of, of renting this kind of infrastructure? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, so, so people certainly will give out like either free uh, sometimes free, they'll give out subdomains either for free or for a fee. Uh, so like uh, there's somebody set up, I think, nameth.io, you can get a something.dev.eth. Uh, I think it caught, they, they charge like $10 for, I mean, they could charge whatever they want. It could be free. It could be $100. They've done that. I know Eric Connor um, has done the same with fmojis.eth and ismoney.eth. Um, so people certainly do kind of that idea with subdomains. Uh, we also have a website now.ens.domains, and there's tons of domains that people put there that you can get like free subdomains. You know, if you don't want to have to own and buy your own name, just simpler, get a subdomain for free. Um, so there is that. Um, and then what I think what you, you were referring to before, if you look at the records, there's something called the registrant, and that is like the Ethereum account that ultimately controls the name kind of owns thing, but then there's this thing called controller and the controller is the Ethereum account that can set the records. Now this is set differently because you might want to own the name, but you want to give someone else the ability to change the records, but without you giving up control of the name. So it separates these things. Um, and then uh, the resolver of course is kind of like the record set they're using and just, you know, use the public resolver for most use cases. And then the, if, if, the receiving address is, is, is under the uh, address record for, for Ethereum, and then under other addresses is other cryptocurrencies. So that's where it goes to. So you could theoretically have the registrant be one, one Ethereum account, the controller be a different one, and then where it resolves to, a different one as well. Okay, so me and Christian are running a, a contest where uh, it's a Movember contest, and whoever sends Bitcoin and Ether Whoever, whichever side sends less of their particular cryptocurrency, uh, the other person has to match. And so what we're doing is, is you can send your Ether funds to pov.eth, uh, povcrypto.eth, uh, and then we have the Bitcoin address for Bitcoiners. Can we add, so we have the Ethereum address added already. Can we add the Bitcoin address at, to the same povcrypto.eth? Will that yes. work? Yeah, you can have as many different cryptocurrency addresses as you want. So you could tell people send Ether to you know POV crypto.eth or send Bitcoin there too. I mean, you could put a Dogecoin oh. address. So like if you want to see an example, nice. go to Brantley.eth, B-R-A-N-T-L-Y.eth. This is my name. I, I mm-hmm. talk about this publicly. And I've got their addresses for you know, I've got an IPFS hash. I've also got addresses for Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin, Ethereum, Ethereum Classic, Bitcoin Cash, and even Binance Chain. Nice. Why so do you want all that to... shit? <laughs> uh, so that it, I can eventually trade it to Ether because that's, that's where I'm going to be holding it. But if you want to send me your BNB tokens, feel free. Please do. I will accept it. 
but that's just with one name. So like if, if mm -hmm. you're saying, hey friend, pay me in cryptocurrency. Oh, w which cryptocurrency? Here's the name. You can send me any mm -hmm. cryptocurrency. It doesn't matter. Right. You don't have to send them this address or that address. It's silly. Just one name. That's it. Or one QR code or whatever. Well, I, a QR code. Yeah. But I mean, I'd say that's harder to do than just, I can text them my name or something. Yeah, I guess so. I guess, I guess QR codes were only good because we have this long string of characters. So I guess that's kind of redundant now, huh? Yeah. Well, something interesting, right, is in Asia, QR codes are very, very prevalent. And that's partially because they don't really use human readable URLs like we do in the US. Mm -hmm. So um, they are very ahead of the QR code and non-human readable names space. Um, Brantley, I can tell that you have a lot of strong opinions about Ethereum. Why, why are you building on Ethereum? Why are you holding your wealth in Ethereum? Wait, let's, let's ask that question, but I want to ask one more question about ENS before we move on to that. Okay, cool. I mean, we could also get back to that. <laughs> Wait, hold on a second. When, what, I thought we were going to start shouting at each other at some point. When, when is that happening? This is when that comes. But, okay. but I want to ask about um, the, the, so the pricing. So I bought davidhoffman.eth for $5. Where did my $5 go and why was it $5? Good, good question. Good question. Hey, sweetie, you got to go. No, you got to go, sweetie. I'm doing a call. This is my daughter here. Say hi. What's up? Hi. Hello. All right, now go. Close the door. Her offsec uh, is ruined. My, we my very much can cut that out. Whatever you want to do. Um, okay, so, um, okay, pricing. So f let's get fundamental. Let's get really fundamental. Why do names cost anything? Couldn't we just make them free? This is what people say, okay? Here's why. Because remember, human readable names are, it, it, you can't just generate these things and they, they have social meaning and there's a limited number of these things that with the same social meaning and name to name, it, it changes, right? Brantley.com is, is different than like Brantley alligator crypto turtle something.com, right? It, it's not the same. So uh, if you didn't charge anything for names, then one person could just register a hundred million names. They basically own the namespace and then they could either just not have anybody use it and that's it. Can't use the namespace anymore. It's ruined. Or they could start renting them out to people. So you're going to have something like that. So, you, so basically you need a rate, rate limiter. It's like, why do we have gas in Ethereum? Because you can't just do unlimited computations, right? So it's a rate limiter. You have to have some charge. Now, the key thing is you want a fee that's low enough that legitimate use is not curtailed, but that's high enough that somebody who's just like a mass squatter is gonna, is gonna feel some pain. So, you know, there's a little subjectiveness to subjectivity to this. We thought for most names, $5, five US dollars a year in ether was small enough that for most people it's negligible. It's not gonna prevent them from doing anything. But if you're like a squatter and have like 20,000 names, that's $100,000 a year that you're paying for nothing, possibly nothing. So, you know, so the idea is if you're not getting value from it, uh, give up the name. You know, if you can't get $5 of value out of your name, don't have a name. Give it to somebody else who maybe could. So then uh, shorter names we charge more for. So for five characters and greater, it's $5 a year, $5 a year. Um, and, and by the way, you can pay ahead. So if you want to say, oh, I don't have to think about it pay $50 of ether you've got for 10 years. It's locked in. Nothing can't go away, you know, or $500 would get you a hundred years. That could be an expensive name though. $50. Well, if you uh, anticipate uh, appreciation, that could be a very expensive name. 
Oh, oh, you mean with, with Ether, right. Uh, it could be, and it's immediately buy the Ether back from Coinbase, and then you won't have that problem. Uh, but, but sure. Uh, so, so you can pay ahead if you want. Um, so then for characters, we charge $160 a year in Ether, and then they can also be paid ahead. You know, all this can be paid ahead. And three characters is $640 a year in Ether, and then we don't have one and two characters available. Now, why is this? It's because um, shorter names are exponentially more rare. Like, if you do the calculations, there are way fewer three-letter names in the world than there are five characters even. Because we don't just have all Latin characters, we also have all emojis. So the, the difference is exponential, it's huge. And the point is, is because these are rare and because they're shorter, that's nicer. If you have a three character name and you're not getting $640 worth of value out of it, just get it, just give it up, select someone else who will and get a five character name. That's not that big of a difference. Um, so, so, so it's trying to prevent name squatting. That's the key thing. So this is actually another difference with unstoppable domains. I keep giving them all this uh, free, free press. Um, they, you just pay once and that's it, you want it forever. Um, that might be a great selling point. We think that's actually bad from an engineering standpoint because that means once you buy it, it's a sunk cost. You have no cost to squatting on that forever from that point forward. You have no incentive to ever give it up. And we'd like people to give up names if they're no longer getting value out of them, ongoing, forever. Uh, so that's very important. The second part of your question, where did the money go? Great question. Uh, we discussed this for months on our forum. You know, we got lots of community, community input. There's different options. I mean, one option is we could just burn it. I mean, we would consider that, uh, you know, and we would be fine with that. Uh, the problem is that we need funds to, we need funds for the ongoing maintenance, development, and promotion of VNS, right? And so, you know, our, our take has been if the EF or if some wealthy benefactor could guarantee that our team has, you know, minimal funding forever, Great, we'll burn the money, you know, and that would completely remove any kind of questions about the incentives of why we set the fees the way we do. I mean, we really tried to set the fees as not based on our needs, based on the protocol needs, but That's I understand there's that, there's that question, right? We'd be free to do that. However, we don't have that. So, so our thing was, well, we'll, we'll take the, fee, we'll, we'll receive the fees from the .eth names and that will hopefully uh, fund the ongoing development, maintenance, improvement, promotion of ENS. Um, and, uh, it actually, we actually have an extra step involved. So, so there's a four of seven multi-sig that, um, it's called the root key holders. They have a certain powers related to ENS. The money goes there. And then we actually have to apply to that four of seven to get the money. I mean, our expectation is most of it will come to us. Um, and then in terms of amount, some people think we're getting like a billion dollars a year or something. It's not, I mean, we, ex we expect starting next year when the, when the fees will really kick in. Uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, but it's, it's hard, it's hard to tell. And so this is going to be a reoccurring fund. So every single year, you're going to get another wave of payments, which will also grow given that, you know, ENS also grows to me, I, to right. me, what I see is like, if you wanted to just kill all baggage, you would just burn it. But it sounds like there's like a lost opportunity there where this sounds like a, a way to fund, uh, Ethereum. This feels like a way to have um, a native way to create a dev fund that is also generally politically neutral, I would say. Yeah, and no. that's kind of a rare, that's a rare opportunity. Absolutely. And if we were raising $50 million a year, 
you know, we could fund all Ethereum protocol development mm -hmm. or something like, and then we'd love that. I mean, again, that's not going to happen anytime soon. We're not expecting that. Um, but, you know, we would say we first need to pay for the ENS development costs. And then if we have extra money more than we need, mm -hmm. we will gladly give it out as grants or give it to the EF or whoever, you know. You know Can you just put it in Moloch? Sense. Put it in what? Moloch, Moloch DAO. We could also put it in Moloch. Yeah, that would be my vote. You should, you should take a vote by everyone with an ENS name, which is good because it's pro rata their share of how much money they put in. Yes, and by the way, there is precedence for this. So for example, uh, the IETF, the, Inter the Internet Engineering Task Force, is one of these organizations that most people haven't heard of, but they like manage the internet. Uh, they, their, their support comes from the fact that they own .org. Now, I think they actually, I just read they sold this to somebody, so it's not, they might maybe don't anymore. I heard that today too. So, but until recently, if that, I'm not sure the details of that deal, but until recently, basically their funding was, so .org used to be owned by VeriSign. Like 20 years ago, people say it's crazy that one private company owns .com and .org and like .net, and we're not going to let you have this monopoly. So the deal was, we'll let you have .com forever if you give up .org. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay. So then .org basically was given to the IETF and funds this engineering development of the internet. That was their funding model. So there's some precedence for, for this funding model. Dope. I like it. Christian, how does that make you feel? It's interesting. So let's talk about why you're bullish on Ethereum. <laughs> you you got to convince me. Uh, you, apparently. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I think, I think, I don't think Bitcoin is going away. I don't, you know, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think Bitcoin will be around, you know, indefinitely into the future. Most um, people think that. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going away. I think it's relative importance, you know, in the last few years has declined. And I think that will continue to, to happen. And I think Ethereum uh, is Re really- It's honest. relative relevancy or it's total relevancy? I think it's relative importance in the blockchain world. So, okay. e so even if Bitcoin continues to gr grow in market cap, so mm -hmm. let's just say market cap is, is, is where rubber mm -hmm. meets the road. Proxy for users, proxy for transactions. For everything, et cetera, et cetera. yeah, just yeah. valuing it, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bitcoin used to be like 95%, 90%, uh, you know, market share. Now it's like 60% or something. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a decline. And it's been mm -hmm. as low as like 30%. Now, I think that that will likely continue over time. Again, that doesn't mean Bitcoin's failing. I think Bitcoin almost certainly, I would say, this is not investment advice. I think Bitcoin is almost guaranteed to significantly go up in price going into the future. I mean, I just think it is. I just think other things are going to go up in price maybe faster. And I think Ethereum is where almost all the interesting development work is happening, in my opinion. Uh, I think it's fulfilling many of the early promises of Bitcoin to be programmable money that's happening on Ethereum. And so I don't think Ethereum, Bitcoin has to go away. But I think just, yeah, Ethereum, look, just, I'll put it this way. If e, just, let's say ENS is successful, like maximally successful, becomes the new infrastructure for naming on the internet that alone is would be such an enormous and amazing achievement Ethereum, that alone would make ethereum a massively successful project that is how huge that domain is and that is just one thing that ethereum's mm -hmm. you know, i mean obviously the whole DeFi movement is exploding and that is huge that's <laughs> the potential there is enormous i mean there, there's gaming there's all these things so even one of these things catch on in a significant way 
Ethereum will be an extremely valuable system in the world. I mean, that's the thesis, right? Is that uh, all of these things are happening and it's going to be extremely successful. Uh, I do like have pause, right? Like what is Ethereum? How is Ethereum going to continue to define itself? What are the rules going to change into um, and how are you going to coordinate all these people and all these projects around those rules? Um, I think there's a whole lot of uncertainty there. So, you know, you could throw out like we're playing all these games but, you know, is the foundation adequate uh, in order to compete in any of these games meaningfully? I don't know. Like, is drama and, and civil war and all that stuff uh, something that can be avoided? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, could Ethereum fail? I mean, of course. Of course it could. Uh, this is new technology experimental. I would say right now, I would bet it's more likely to succeed than fail. But, I mean, that's my own subjective opinion. Um, I mean, I would say the blockchain world in general, so is like, it's the scaling problem. Can it scale? And this has been debated since like the, when Satoshi sent out the white paper on the, to that uh, email list, one of the, some of the first responses were like, this can't scale. So, I mean, this has been, this has been the question. And of course, this was percolating for years. Then 2015, this exploded in the Bitcoin community. And there was the whole block size war debates. I personally was a big blockist. Um, but it doesn't really matter anymore. Are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't really matter at this point. Um, and that is an open question for anything. Frankly, I don't. I think Bitcoin won't reach its full potential if it doesn't scale. And I think same goes for Ethereum and anything. So, yeah. So I, I'm actually kind of curious. Okay, I mean, I think that scaling for Bitcoin is really different than scaling for Ethereum. But I'm kind of curious. Like, tell me about your thinking. You know. In 2015, more of we should increase the block size and you know keep chugging on how we know. Um, ver like, how has your mentality changed? Uh, did you learn anything from kind of watching Bitcoin? Uh, yeah, would love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, no, I mean, like my, I mean, I my first love was Bitcoin. Um, I was super inspired about it. I started following in 2013, but I, I didn't buy my first Bitcoin until like the very beginning of 2015. Um, and I was totally sold out on it, man. And um, yeah, look, the block size wars uh, did disappoint me, how those went. And I would say the biggest disappointment was not the, the result. It was the manner by which it went. And it wasn't the fact that people were mad at each other or fighting. That was, I expect that that's normal. In fact, I say that's a healthy community fights. You know, I actually, I say this like in families too. It's like, if you never fight with your spouse, like, are you sure everyone's being completely honest with each other? Because, <laughs> um, that's not normal that you have no disagreements ever. Uh, in fact, it maybe shows you're not communicating. That's very bad. Side comment. Um, you shouldn't be mean to each other, but like, are you communicating? And I'll tell you, I can even tell the day that I think Bitcoin was possibly irreparably damaged, really, really bad. I, I'd have to look up the exact day, but it was in September of 2015 when Thamos, head moderator of our Bitcoin, decided to say, I'm going to censor any discussion of, of seriously increasing the block size limit. You see, he laid that out. And... People have to understand the cryptocurrency community at that time was way smaller. And our Bitcoin was like where the communication happened. That's where the debates were, you know? And so for him to say that 
was so terrible because it, it meant that now the big blockists had to somehow scramble to find some other thing. You know, they eventually got BTC, R BTC, and and uh, it meant the community stopped talking to each other, and it meant that the big block side no longer trusted the, the small block side. Like there was a breach of trust of saying, hey, look, no matter where it goes, can we at least agree to talk to each other? And to say, we're gonna shut down communication and censor this in, in a ridiculous ways, that was terrible to Bitcoin. It hurt, it, you know, it, it broke the community very badly. I, I think the Bitcoin community has been ill-served by that greatly. I think it, it, it's become an echo chamber, it's very bad. And then basically what happened is a lot of very smart, dedicated old Bitcoiners left the Bitcoin space as a result, most of them to, to Ethereum. Like in, in 2016, early 2017, there was a big brain drain exodus. So I can name off some people. Vitalik Buterin, major Bitcoiner. Uh, he helped found Bitcoin Magazine. No question he was a Bitcoiner. Joseph Poon, uh, one of the creators mm -hmm. of the Lightning Network, which the yeah. Bitcoin community is staking like the whole future the of the paper. Network. Mm -hmm. He was, he eventually was spurned by the Bitcoin community because they were so toxic. He now works, mo you know, in, in the Ethereum community and does yeah, on, on plasma, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and many other things as well. It's like doing um, handshake stuff. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, he does many things, you know, but the point is, and there's lots of people like that. And uh, Bitcoin, I think as a result has stopped innovating. Um, and, you know, I have nothing against Lightning Network. I think it's crazy to say, we are going to bet the future of the network on an untested, never developed technology. And that's basically what the like debate staking? was. No, no, well, so I, I would disagree. So, so it's actually different. So I would say it's different. In I, I would say it's different because we're not completely betting the network entirely on that. So in, in 2015. Neither is Bitcoin. I think that's a very strange misconception. Most Bitcoiners it, actually consider Lightning Network people kind of like the B-cashers of Bitcoin. Like it's about sound money, not not okay well payments. early in 2015 the discussion was we don't need to do anything else because the lightning network is right around the corner this is the this is what the main debate was and, I, and the bitcoin community i'm sure has evolved since then i haven't kept in touch with it as closely recently something that attracted me to the ethereum community early on and i would say it's a big difference is that it's been a do all the above approach so hey you know if we need to fiddle with the block size or gas size limit some Let's do that temporarily. It's not, it's not going to solve every problem forever. Let's do that to have some temporary relief. Uh, let's do side chains, plasma. Uh, let's do Raiden, right? Uh, let's, let's work on proof of stake and sharding. Let's do all of the above with the hope that in the short term, in the long term, maybe a couple different things will work, maybe not all of them. But rather than saying we're going to, to limit our options in the short term and hurt the network, I just completely disagree with that philosophy. Mm-hmm. Ethereum kind of evolves in a way a virus evolves. Totally non-directional, but omni-directional, not omni, polydirectional. And it, whichever ways just work out, just work out. And then there's a new virus that has mutated to a more adaptable form. Yeah, and, and I also say, you know, you, I'm sorry. Okay, so it. you said the sound money thing. Yeah, I mean, that core to Bitcoin's identity. I will say, pre to the block size limit debate, the... The clear vision of what Bitcoin was supposed to be was a peer-to-peer, -peer, right, electronic cash is in the title of the white paper, a payment network for everything. And, and the explicit plan had been for increasing the block size limit as the network needed to scale. So Toshi said many, this was the explicit plan of everybody was on board with this. 
And in 2015, when Gavin Andreessen, you know, was not been a perfect person. He had some poor judgment with, with Craig Wright, who's obviously a fraud, no question there. Um, he had some poor judgment there. But look, Gavin Andreessen, who, who was a key person early Bitcoin, Bitcoin not be where it is without him. I have to give him credit. Um, he basically said, look, the, we're reaching the block, we're going to be reaching the block size limit for the first time ever soon. So as we talked about, let's consider raising the block size limit. And early on, even people like Adam Back said, hey, yeah, let's double it to two and then maybe four and eight. He said that many people. Um, and, and, and then uh, for some reason, Thamos shut down the discussion and people got super polarized. And you had, in my mind, this crazy view of like, we can't change the block size limit. It's just completely insane to me. I don't think we need to have gigabyte blocks. But to say we can't have two megabytes or 10 megabytes, I think it would be negligible difference on the network uh, for, in terms of the infrastructure. And it would help the payments. And I think Bitcoin could have kept growing faster. In fact, I would even go as far as to say is it's not clear to me that Ethereum would be as successful as it is today if Bitcoin had just freaking increased the block size limit a little bit. That's what I think. I could be wrong. Nice. Yeah, I mean, Ryan Child Adams like spews things at me like if only Bitcoin would increase, uh, would would issue one percent issuance throughout eternity, then I'd feel way better about it. But like, I think the thing that's like really interesting and beautiful about Bitcoin is that you can't coordinate everyone. Like that is the innovation, right? And like everything that all you guys are talking about involves needing to coordinate people um, in order to do it successfully. So like I, I personally, I think that Ethereum is like swimming upstream because it is decentralizing yet every, like all of its plans depend on coordination. Um, so like that in itself, I think is very bearish for Ethereum. And personally, I would actually be more bullish for Ethereum if there wasn't all this tinkering, because I think that that is getting in the way of, it being an established standard and like there's all these standards in ethereum and then guess what like people like uh, argon uh, argon dow like all their contracts are going to be broken or whatever in this uh next uh you know this next version of ethereum and stuff like that like i think all of those things like i understand what you're saying because it makes sense from that perspective back then but like given what we know now about how bitcoin works I don't really see how trying to coordinate to scale a blockchain is actually more competitive than having something that is just a standard that you can rely on period. And it's not changing. Like I think almost all of these things can happen away from proving what 21 million monetary units are. Right. And that's why I kind of think this revolution's about. Um, so I don't know. I just like, I understand that you're frustrated that you can increase the block size, but the whole point is that I'm you can't. I'm still upset about it. <laughs> you, you, but you can't coordinate, bro. You just can't. That's the whole point. So I'm sorry, you know, well, but you can't. Well, okay. So actually, I'm fine with the, the 21 million limit on Bitcoin. I, I know, like, by the way, people like Peter Todd have been questioning that for years. Um, I, sure, I'm actually, I think they're all wrong anyways, but yeah, still. I'm on board with that, actually. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think the... Um, I mean, it's impossible to know the counter, uh, counterfactuals, you know, like if, what, what if, right? I think if Bitcoin had had better communication decentralization, so basically we learned that our Bitcoin was a massive uh, point of failure for the community. It was. And um, 
Or you could say that you just can't scale community. Like maybe there's multiple communities in Bitcoin. And like maybe the R Bitcoin community is one of them, but like how about all the people in China that aren't on R Bitcoin? Are they part of the community? No, that's true. No, you're right. Like, that is true. I mean, there's I think maybe they're just a completely different community using that tech. No, you're right. But I'm saying what our Bitcoin is today is not what it was a few years ago. And that was created by force by the moderators to make a drastic change to that. Um, they are allowed to do that, obviously, if they want to. Um, you know, in terms of social coordination, I mean, Ethereum has successfully done a number of, of, of hard fork upgrades. Um, I mean, there was debate about whether hard forks could ever be done successfully and things like this. I think that, that's been put to rest since then. I mean, there was legitimate questions about that years ago because people hadn't done it on the scale they have today. Um, but I, I think that could be put to rest. My, my, my point is that, you know, people say like Bitcoin hasn't changed. And, you know, and Bitcoin can go whatever direction the people want it to go. The vision that Bitcoin should have small blocks, you know, at least for now or for the time being in the future, and it's just a store of value. That's fine. They can have that vision. That was not the original vision of Bitcoin. That's not the vision that me and many others signed up for. That is a fundamental change to Bitcoin. So the, the ironic thing was not, so to, to keep Bitcoin on the original vision required a protocol level change of changing the block size limits. Um, and changing it required doing nothing. Uh, I mean, look, I, it's water under the bridge at this point. I'm not really interested in Bitcoin, you know, moving forward. I'm just saying this is my perspective of that debate. And I don't think I'm the only one who thinks this. I mean, I know. You're, you're not. You're not. But I do have a quick question for you, right? So you pretty much said that the subjective thing that what I thought Bitcoin is and what the promise of Bitcoin written in English on the white paper was did not equate to what was the source code that you could not change. Uh, like what happens when people start saying this subjective idea of what Ethereum is that I want it to be does not equal the code that everyone's running. We need to change the code to fit this subjective idea. Like that seems like a really dangerous place to be kind of thinking about how to organize these systems. Yeah. So I would say that I think actually what the block size limit taught. So, so before the block size limit debate, like the big rallying cry in Bitcoin, which was the cryptocurrency space, right? Was like in math, we trust, right? Or in crypto, we trust. You don't, it's trustless. You don't have to trust anybody, right? And it's all about this. And I think really what it showed is that that's not entirely true. So it, that Bitcoin, you know, it's, it, there's less trust, let's say a namespace. I talked about social, you know, social contract. There's more trust there. Bitcoin depends on its network effect. And that is so, so Bitcoin is really a social coordination mechanism. And, and like I can keep running my, my, a certain version of Bitcoin, but if nobody else is, it's worthless. So its value entirely comes from the social coordination. So um, now it might require not that much trust, like you run the code or you don't. And, it, and if you do run the code, it'll just work. So it limits the trust, but it's not completely trustless. And I would say like, um, if its value was in its network, the value is in the community. And I think the Bitcoin community was severely damaged in the whole block size war debate based on the way it was done. Um, and I think in Ethereum has, there's been a lot of explicit discussion to say, how can we learn from that failure and try to do better? Now, Ethereum community has problems, so question. Um, but for example, there were decisions made like at the very beginning, there was at least two uh, subreddits, right? Ftrader and Ethereum. 
We're going to keep the price and the, and the, the tech talk separately. Now there's even X Finance and there's other ones as well. But even that separate separation was like, okay, great. If one of them gets taken over by a crazy person, we still have at least another one. Um, there was that. And, you know, we try to be more friendly, more open-minded. We're not always perfect. But people will explicitly say, let's not make the same mistakes of Bitcoin. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is like, I, I think even Bitcoin is not just tech. It's a social coordination thing. And that's always the case. Everything's subjective. So people say, well, we did the Dow fork. Uh, yeah, that's, people forget in early Bitcoin history, there were problems, there were, there were rollbacks and forks and things like this to fix that. And that could happen going same. into, I'm sorry? Not the same. One was to prevent a theft and the other one was a technical bug, right? Uh, it's ultimately a, a subjective question about what warrants a hard fork or a rollback. I think one, one is a lot more scalable than the other one. Right. But what I'm saying is that there is nothing technologically preventing that Bitcoin has done that. There's nothing technologically preventing Bitcoin from doing that in the future. It's, so, it's entirely a social coordination issue. I mean, yeah. I agree. These things help us scale social like coordination, right? But being able to coordinate everyone to agree to change is, is, is uh, you want to prevent that. So that way you can have uh, security and assurance in the thing that is allowing you to socially scale, right? That's I can send money to David, I can send him Bitcoins, and he doesn't have to trust me because he can trust this system. And the reason you can do that is because he knows that I can't coordinate with everyone else to fuck him. And everyone else that scales, you know, between David all the way up. Right. Um, so I just don't, I just don't see Ethereum providing that single feature um, at the biggest scale right now. And right, but you did bring up like Ethereum, like the com but that you're saying that Ethereum community is going to, continue to hold these ideals because it's a community and Bitcoin's community is fractured. But I think Bitcoin is about the antithesis of community, right? Bitcoin is about, is about, about enemies. It's about, I hate you, you hate me, but we agree on Bitcoin, right? So uh, I just don't even think that community is the right mental model to be using at all. Yeah, I, well, I would say Bitcoin certainly has a community and it's, it is varied. It has, has many community of people using it. No, sure. Not one. Absolutely. But I mean, you know, depending on how we, we want to define it, but Ethereum is the same way. And I would expect that I'll say this. I was against the Dow, the Dow save, save the Dow fork at the time. Um, I went along with it ultimately because that's where the network effect is. Uh, there wasn't value to me being by myself on Ethereum classic with, you know, a few, like five other people. Um, so I ultimately had to do it and I was against it. And I would strongly reject that going forward. And Ethereum, I think as it gets bigger and more varied, things like that I would expect would become harder and harder to being close to impossible, similar to in Bitcoin. My point is, is that that is a social question. It has nothing to do with the technology. There's nothing technologically that prevents Bitcoin from doing the exact same thing. It's, it's entirely a social coordination issue. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess, like, I would say the phys there's like a physical thing that is preventing it from happening. Like, literally, there are nodes geolocated in different places across the world, which makes it hard to coordinate. Like, I, I, I agree. It's like, maybe the it's not, I don't even think maybe, 
maybe, maybe, yeah, I'm saying, but that's the thing is that Ethereum is counting on coordinating. And I think that that's, it's swimming upstream, right? Bitcoin's not okay. counting on coordinating. Um, I think that's, that's my biggest bear case for Ethereum is that, that fact. But like, I wouldn't even say it's like a social thing. I would say like, literally it is a physiological uh, difficulty in coordinating. It's like a coordination thing more than anything else. Like I'm trying to like really break this down and why I disagree with your criticisms of Bitcoin. Cause like anyone, like maybe even say, like you could say that any past community had misconceptions about what something is, but that doesn't change what it is. Right. So like, I, I don't know. I'm just trying to articulate that, but I think we, be, we can go down this like back and forth forever. And uh, you know, <laughs> I think we've definitely drifted very far from the original topic in general, though. I think ENS is very, very fascinating and, this plus the Dan Elter interview probably sparked my interest in Ethereum more than anything else so far. Like by far, like I actually don't even buy into the DeFi thing very much. Like I think that there's so many, uh, there's so many, I guess, tripping spots for DeFi. Like there's so many regulatory hurdles and like, and like wet code in DeFi. Well, like, like, this we, find plus- a bug. we find a bug in the DAI contracts. And everything explodes. We don't talk about that. <laughs> if we don't talk about it, it won't happen, right? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, I guess, you know, I'm not trying to, like, you know, everyone knows that I'm more of the Bitcoin, right? I'm just trying to articulate why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I Bradley, mean, that's, I, a, that's a huge compliment from Christian, by the way. That's the only time. He, he's only said that two times. Okay, great. Both yeah, recently, I, I, agree, I agree with everything you said. I was just saying... I think Ethereum is exactly the same. Now, the the difference might be is that there's a different cultural expectation in the Ethereum community mm-hmm. than in the Bitcoin community. It's a different social which, contract. Which is important, but it's not a technological thing, right? What you're depending on there is not merely the technology. The technology sets the parameters for the, how that social coordination would have to happen, no question. But the technology doesn't prevent hard forks or changes or anything like that. It's a social... Now, maybe... Well, that's what decentralization, maybe not socially i don't like social is sticky decentralization prevents the hard forks of course like yeah like it's the, a social contract that can presents do the hard forks no it's this decentralization and difficult well, to communicate it's the difficulty mm-hmm. it's that the social coordination necessary to make a hard fork let's say to bitcoin successfully is so high that it hasn't happened or won't happen or mm-hmm. will only happen under extreme circumstances right we that, haven't seen existential issues yet Right. So, so in the, in the, in the Dow case, Ethereum was early. There was hardly anything else happening on it. It was a small community. The difficulty of coordinating over what, which seemed like a catastrophic thing for the community was relatively easy to do. Now my, and I was even against it at the time, but it was relatively easy to do. My expectation is that today, so, so we, we've been challenged on this again. There was the mm-hmm. parity problem, right? With the wallets, they really want their money back. And I don't blame them. It hasn't happened because people don't want it. And, and, and coordinating that would be much harder. And my expectation, like you said, like Ethereum depends on this coordination going forward. I actually completely agree with it. I think Vitalik would as well. He's spoken about this, that his expectation is that the ability to hard fork or upgrade Ethereum will get harder and harder over time. And that it will tend eventually towards not changing or, or rarely changing, which is, you know, so it's like these early years, we can kind of make changes in this expectation, but that will gradually decrease hopefully over time. So I actually, I actually agree with most of what you're saying. That's always been the vision I've always proposed for Ethereum is like, we have these very obvious glaring issues that we need to research and develop and then implement. 
And at some point we're going to run out of those issues. And at that point, uh, and it's part, part of the reason why Bitcoin doesn't hard fork is because of what Christian says, where there is no Bitcoin community. There's just a bunch of people that use Bitcoin and that's hard to hard fork because the reason why Ethereum can hard fork is because we're way smaller, like we're a way smaller community and we've been promised this vision of Ethereum 2.0. And so for our bags, it sounds like a good reason to, to hard fork in sharding and, and proof of stake and, and all Another these other Another word is centralized. Huh? Another word is centralized. Well, okay. So not when we are decentralized across a community of what, like 50,000? Like maybe we're more centralized than Bitcoin, but our community of 50,000 is pretty, pretty decentralized. It's just that this community of 50,000 all agrees we have consensus that we want charting and proof of stake. Yeah. I mean, so, if you want to talk about centralization, again, I would say that the, in my mind, it's impossible to know for certain. The main reason that the block size limit wasn't changed is because one person who controlled the main communication channel shut down the communication. That was extremely centralized. And that's why, in my opinion, that's why it happened. I mean, there's no way to say that if RBTC did not change, that there would be, there would be a, a hard fork in Bitcoin. There, like, that is impossible to say. And frankly, I was not there. So <laughs> I can't even speak to it. Um, yeah. But I would say, generally speaking, it has been impossible to coordinate everyone in Bitcoin to make a change so far. Mm-hmm. Which, is, which um, is what is good for Bitcoin, but that would be bad for Ethereum. Maybe I like it. Just we don't want that. We have opted out of that. I mean, I think it's bad for Bitcoin, but oh, fair. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess we don't really agree on what's good for anything, right? But that's the it's struggle all, here. I actually, I actually argue a lot with Bitcoiners about what's actually good for Bitcoin. Um, mm-hmm. But no one can really uh, can agree on what's good for anything. And I think I personally think that everyone's just really confused the whole time. Like we're all just fucking running around blind and, and trying to figure out what the hell happened. What the hell's happening? All right, Brantley, I'm being mindful of your time now. So let's wrap this up. I really appreciate you coming on POV Crypto. That was a super enlightening episode, not just about ENS and this lively debate, but also just about the way the, the 2.0 system of, of web naming works. So thank you for coming on and, and sharing your, uh, all about ENS and, and giving us a little bit more knowledge. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I, I guess we didn't get too heated, but maybe next yeah, time. It's pretty good. For sure. We try to keep it good faith and civil, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Brantley, thanks again for coming on. Uh, Where can people find you? Uh, I mean, our website's Mm -hmm. ens.domains. We're on Twitter, on GitHub. Are you on Twitter? I am also on Twitter, Brantley Milligan. Brantley Milligan. Awesome. Brantley, thanks for coming on. Appreciate your time. Yep. Have a great day. You guys can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Medium. Christian? Yep, CK underscore Snarks. You know the drill. If you have not given us five-star reviews yet, go in there. Get us to 100 reviews, please. Get us to 100 reviews before we get to 100 shows. Like, it should be one for one at least. Running out of time, guys. Yeah. All right, thanks, Brantley.